the senior pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. I first met Sandy a pretty long time ago now at this point when I was a freshman uh, in college at Furman University. One of my very close friends was from Memphis, Tennessee. If you've ever met a Memphian, you'll know that they're extremely proud of their city. They'll brag about the water and they'll brag about uh, their schools and then they'll brag about their church. And so my friend was always bragging about the new pastor who just come. This was 1995. His name was Sandy Wilson. And so on breaks, I would periodically travel home and I was like, you know, well, there may be something to brag about. He's pretty good. Um, and then uh, over the years, I was at Second a few more times. And then as a seminary student, I had the opportunity to go and do an internship at Second for 18 months. And Sandy looked down at me on the very first day that I was there. And he said to me, he said, now, Chuck, um, you've got 18 months here. And um, I rather kind of kick you out of here um, a little bit ready for you to go rather than to be bored with you. Um, my 18 months turned into five years, and he may have regretted saying that. Um, but <laughs> there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't have Sandy in my head as a pastor giving me advice, thinking about models that he gave me. He's a wise, seasoned pastor. He has ministered to missionaries around the world, to pastors, uh, and to many people. And so it's a real privilege. It's a pleasure for us to have him. And, uh, and so I'm glad that we have the gift. And it's wonderful to share him with you. And so, Sandy, we invite you up to share God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. And I bring greetings to you from so many of your and Melissa's friends in Memphis who still rue the day that you drove out of town which has been a while, but it's still fresh on all of our minds. And it's so great to see Chuck and Melissa and these three kids, one of whom, Kenzie, I hadn't even met yet. And they've just been growing up like weeds. And obviously they're flourishing here with you uh, in Jacksonville. It's good to see Dave. You know, he was on second Presbyterian staff right after his graduation from Rhodes College in Memphis. Good to see Dave. And then uh, Keith as well. And to know that you have these three outstanding churches. And then to be here tonight, uh, to be with all of these missionaries, some local, some international, uh, what a distinguished group of people. And I know these congregations, as they gather together for this conference, are really honored and pleased to have you here and to have you on their missionary prospectus. Uh, it's very important that we have hardworking, God-fearing missionaries in our churches and then I'm especially honored to be here for the resumption of your missionary conference. Uh, it's been some years since uh, the Christ uh, Church and, and Church Plants have had this kind of conference, and I'm so delighted that you're starting it up, and I think we've already heard tonight uh, one testimony of why it's so special to have this conference. When Josh tells us that he was 19 years of age, sitting right out there during a missions conference, and it was that conference that moved him into a very explicit role in the mission of Christ around the world. And I want to encourage you, uh, some of you who may have been here for the conferences past, maybe looking around and saying, you know, we need more people here. Yes, of course you do. And you must start somewhere, and you've started wonderfully tonight, and we'll be together in the morning, and then for lunch, and then, of course, on Sunday morning. And we've noticed at Second Presbyterian Church and every other church I've been in, that things grow with time. As God blesses in those conferences, 
more and more of our members consider it uh, part of their annual curriculum to be in the missions conference. And I pray it's that way for Christ Church in the years to come. Well, this week, uh, I've been assigned a topic. We're all assigned a topic. It's a very important one. And the topic is finding your place in the mission of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we want to talk about finding your place right here where you are, right here in Jacksonville, Florida. Tomorrow, we want to talk about finding your place on the world scene. And then on Sunday morning, we want to talk about finding your place in your relationship with God. And all of these things come together. We're told by Jesus Christ on a number of occasions that he's sending us into the whole world. There's nothing more amazing besides the resurrection itself than to look at Matthew 28, where Jesus has gathered these fishermen, these very parochial, locally-minded men, and he's telling them that they're to be the international spokespersons for the deity. Now, that's an amazing thing, that they're to be the ones to learn how to communicate cross-culturally, to learn how to travel, to develop linguistic skills, to learn how to play at churches. It's an amazing thing. These fishermen are to be the ones. Well, it's no more amazing than tonight. <laughs> Here we are. We're all that he's got. And I tell you what now, if I were the deity, and you can be glad that I'm not, if I were putting together a team to do this, I think I'd call on the angels. This job is way too important to ask sinners to do it. But we are the ones, and the deity is wiser than I, infinitely so, and he has called redeemed sinners. And as I think about it, I get his point. Among other things, the angels have never experienced the grace of forgiveness, have they? We've experienced it. We know what it means to have all of our debts canceled by the grace of God. We're the ones who have a personal experiential message to take around the world. So, of course, he's sending the ones who know the grace of God to go proclaim the grace of God. Now, in our studies tonight and tomorrow morning and then Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at three portions of the Scriptures. And that's appropriate, isn't it? We look at the whole counsel of God. We're going to look tonight in Jeremiah 29, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, tomorrow morning. I think we're only going to have time to look at one text because there's so much in it. We'll be looking in, the, in a gospel text, and then on Sunday morning we'll look at an epistle text. And we'll get the idea again that you really turn anywhere in your Bible, and it is a missionary Bible. The Lord sent his son. He only had one son, said David Livingston, and he was a missionary. And you'll find that Abraham, from the very beginning, was called to bless the nations. An amazing and compelling call. And then we come to Jesus, and his ministry is to reach not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. And of course, the, the apostle Paul and the other apostles going to the Gentiles, which was outrageous to the covenant people of his own day, outrageously uh, scandalous that God's truth would be taken to the filthy Gentiles like me. But it was. And we find that all of redemptive history is missionary history. So that really, we cannot understand the gospel apart from understanding the task of missions locally and internationally. If you're not engaged in the mission of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel's very intent 
is to bring in all nations, all people from all backgrounds to be one body. This is the, Paul says in Ephesians 3, this is, the mission, this is the mystery of the gospel, is that it would accomplish something that's being seen nowhere else, everywhere else in the world. Different ethnic groups shoot at each other. People from different religious backgrounds strangle each other. But Jesus has created a new community where ethnic groups, socioeconomic backgrounds, and nationalities and religious backgrounds come together in one family. That's the mission of the church. And without being engaged in that mission, we don't understand the gospel. So I'm very thankful to hear the two testimonies we've already heard, which of course reflect the missionary heart of these congregations. And the tragedy in our own day is that in North America, only 11% of Christian churches in North America give anything to missions. 11%. So I would say probably 11% of North American churches are converted churches, true Christian churches. And then there are only 4% of North American churches that are doing what you do, where there is a strong emphasis upon the external mission in the church. So I commend you, and I thank God for you, and pray that you'll continue to grow and be a leadership church that others may look upon what you're doing, become a little bit jealous and want to do it themselves. Well, let's take a look at Jeremiah 29. And before we read the text, uh, let me give you a little bit of background and then we'll pray. You'll remember that because of their disobedience, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken in exile to Babylon. There were about three major exilic historic moments. One of them was in 597 BC, and that's the context here. And in 597 BC, Jeconiah and his, uh, King Jeconiah and his wife were taken off. And then over 3,000 people were taken into exile. They took all the people who were trained, who seemed to be the leaders, because the last thing they wanted, the Babylonians, was for Jerusalem to be built back up and to become another headquarters for hostility against their empire. So they took all the educated people, all the leadership people, and shipped them off back to Babylon. Now, you know in the Bible, the word Babylon is just a, it's a real historic city, but it's also a code word for evil and wickedness. You get, you get into Revelation, and of course the word Babylon is used for the, just the evil world. It's the city of man. It's Babylon. Well, these people were taken off to Babylon. It was the saddest moment in, that, that anyone could remember when they had been given the promised land and now it's taken from them and they're, they're taken into exile by the Babylonians. So they're there in, in Babylon and they're wondering how do we live our lives? Now this is a great question because you know from the New Testament that Peter, just like John in Revelation, picks up on this Old Testament analogy and Peter says in the first chapter of his first epistle, that you are exiles. You are away from home. You are, he doesn't use this word, but you are living in Babylon. And we all realize, well, of course. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's our permanent passport. That's where we belong. That's our permanent eternal citizenship. 
And we too infrequently see ourselves this way, and this is part of the missionary motive, is that we get it straight tonight and throughout this weekend. We are sojourners. And Peter calls us such. We're just a passing through. And we're making our way to the new Jerusalem where we long to be, just like those exiles in Babylon, long to be back in their home city of Jerusalem. Now, the difficulty in the New Testament, when you you live in a country like the U.S., where you have a majority of the population who professes faith in Christ, and we're asking ourselves all kinds of questions about how do we relate to the culture, what is the proper political perspective for Christians, how do we seek to transform our big urban areas, how do we structure an educational system that will be good for all the nation? We have all these questions that are legitimate questions for Christians. But when you turn to the New Testament, you don't get much help, do you? All Peter says is don't offend people unnecessarily. Be sure and give a good testimony so they won't speak ill of the Christians and submit to the government and so on. And why does he do that? Because the Christians are a minuscule minority. He wants them, number one, to bear witness to the glory of Christ, even though they're this tiny group. And secondly, he'd like for them to survive. But we live in a different ethos, don't we? We have opportunities that the first century Christians, at least in the middle of the first century, didn't have. So where are we going to turn for advice? Well, how about Jeremiah 29? Here we will have specific instructions from the prophet Jeremiah, who's back in Babylon, suffering with those who are still behind. And he's now writing a letter to those in Babylon to tell them how to live in Babylon. These instructions are extremely helpful for us as we think about how we find our place in the city where we live. Let's take a look at it. We'll start with verse 1. We're only going to read the first 14 verses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text that is eminently relevant for us, whether in Memphis or Jacksonville or any of the cities or counties of our country. And we pray that you'll help us to devote ourselves and submit ourselves to your very word. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 21, verse 1, hear the word of God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, 
you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All men are grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Now, in the few minutes we're going to take tonight, I just want you to notice three things in this text. Three very important things. Number one, we're going to see in verses one through four, the Lord puts you where you are. I find this more and more important, especially with younger adult Christians who are moving around a lot. Let me say it again. The Lord puts you where you are. We'll see why we say that in a moment. Now, secondly, when you come to verses five through seven, we're going to see that the Lord is giving you a job where you are. Whether you realize you had that job or not, he's given it to you. He's commissioned you in it. And we're going to see what that job is. And then thirdly, when you get to verses 8 through 14, we're going to see that the Lord is going to get you home. Don't you worry about feeling like you're away from home, feeling homesick or sick of home. The Lord's going to get you home. Okay? Now let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4, and we learn this. The Lord has put you where you are. Now, when Jeremiah says that, and he says it in verse 4, it's a shocking sentence. These folks assumed that they had been just completely tanked by evil. And especially these wicked Babylonians, if you ask them, why are you in Babylon? They'll say, well, look at these people, these vicious Babylonians. And I won't go through the gruesome things the Babylonians did to pregnant women and to many other people in Jerusalem before they sacked it, not one stone left upon another. These people may not have been as notoriously violent as uh, the Assyrians that Chuck's been preaching about from Jonah, but maybe they were number two behind the Assyrians. The Assyrians were particularly violent and wicked. They were like ISIS. Babylonians, maybe like the Taliban, by comparison. But they were wicked. And if you ask Jews, how the world do you end up way over here from the promised land? Aren't you supposed to be over there? They said, evil, evil. But look at verse 4. The Lord reminds them, thus says the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of all the hosts of heaven, the sovereign Lord of all creation, that's who's speaking to you. And this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm the one who sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is vitally important. I was with a man just yesterday for lunch. He's a Christian man. He's married to a Christian woman. They're in their 20s. 
He has one of his big first job opportunities there in Memphis. And he wanted to have lunch. Great. I hadn't really had a chance to visit with him yet, although he's been in the church for a while. And I asked him about his background. Well, he's just, he's been in Memphis for two and a half years. Two and a half years, I said. That's interesting. So are you just now visiting second or have you the second Presbyterian or have you been, well, he's been in several churches. He's just been popping around two and a half years. And he says, I said, well, what's taking you so long to find a church that you can join? He said, well, my wife doesn't really like Memphis too much. Well, hello. <laughs> you ever heard that about Jacksonville? I hear it about Memphis all the time. I don't like Memphis very much. Well, la-dee-da. You don't like Memphis. Here is my advice to him. I'm going to, uh, excuse me for being a little bit blunt, but this is, I'll just tell you exactly what I said to him. I said, get your butt in the pew and your tithe in the offering plate and your hands and feet in the mission of the church, for heaven's sakes, and do it quick. And if your wife gets her dreams established and she gets to move out of town, at least you'll move with a little tear down your cheek because you had some friends here. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, I don't care what you think of this place. Now, when I drove, when I drove up, I, I told Chuck before, I've been to Jacksonville before. 1957. <laughs> the Gator Bowl. University of Tennessee, Bobby Gordon, playing against Texas A&M the last year that Paul Bear Bryant coached Texas A&M. John David Crow, you remember the name? He was the Heisman Trophy winner for Texas A&M. And do you remember the score? Well, I do. Three to nothing. <laughs> Three to nothing, UT. Kicked a field goal at the end of the game. Right here, Jacksonville, Florida. Now, I want you to know that in those 60 years, this place has changed a lot. It's really changed. I mean, all I remember are orange groves everywhere. And just look at you. You're sitting here, this huge piece of real estate, the largest geographical city in the country. I mean, it takes you half a day to drive from one end to the other end of it. Just look at the prosperity. I crossed the bay over there. I looked at the Wells Fargo building and all these beautiful sailboats. I'm thinking, man, this place is prosperous. So, Maybe these people who don't like Memphis might like Jacksonville. I don't know. <laughs> but here's what we say to people who come to Memphis. It's not Memphis' job to become like you. It's your job to become like Memphis. It's not Memphis' job to figure out how they can adapt themselves to your family background and your little predilections. And the fact that you like vinegar-based barbecue instead of Memphis barbecue. <laughs> it's not our job, Chuck, to give you North Carolina vinegar-based barbecue. Who gives a flying rip? You're in Memphis. <laughs> and so you're in Babylon. And there's some things about Babylon you cannot do. And Jeremiah and God makes this very clear. You're not to become a Babylonian morally. You're not to worship their gods. You're to be very different from the inside out. But in every way that you can adapt outwardly, remember something very important. God put you here. God did it. You may say, no, 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 I just couldn't find a job anywhere else. No, my mama made me come back. 
Or I have an ill husband who needs to be near a medical center. You may have all kinds of reasons. I get it. That's not untrue. It's not untrue that the Israelites were exiled by wicked Babylonians. But here's the larger truth. He put you into exile, and he put you into the city you're in. Now, there's a reason for it, which takes us to verses 5 through 7. He's got something he's commanding you to do here. And he's dead serious about it. He's got a job for you to do here. Now, there are two jobs. Number one, he wants you to settle in. Look at verses 5 and 6. Settle in. Build, get your house. Plant your garden. You know, if, you, if you're an army brat, you know you were trained. Plant the garden. You may be transferred in six months, but you should have some roses in the backyard there. You don't act like you're just getting ready to move. You, you become integrated to that base wherever you are. If you're, you're in one of the naval bases here, you know better. You don't just act like a migrant all your life. You plant down, and Jeremiah is the first one who said it. He said, look, plant gardens. I want you to live there. Engage the economy. Take its city concerns to your heart. Study the city. Study Duval County. Find out what's going on here. If you're only here nine months, make it nine months when you really got a good education about what's going on in Jacksonville, Florida. So if you move somewhere else, you can tell them all about it because you studied the place because God moved you here. And he moved you here because he had a job for you. Now, if any of you have read um, James Davison's Hunter, Hunter's wonderful book on culture, um, to somebody help me, what? To change the world. Thank you. Three volumes. Uh, you'll find that his bottom line for Christians engaging the world is what he calls faithful presence. Now, I'm going to argue with that in just a moment. But I want to begin by affirming it. And that's what five and six are saying to you. Be faithfully present here. You are now a Jacksonvillian, is that what you say? A Jacksonanini? Something. Thank you. Whatever she said. That's who you are. So, you want to be faithfully present in every way. In fact, you'll notice what Jeremiah says. Get married. Hey, look, if Joshua found a wife in Uganda, I suppose you might find one here in Jacksonville. I doubt you'll do as well, but you can at least give it a shot. So he's saying, let's get married. Let's build families. And you know what I've heard some young people say who are married in recent years? I'm not sure I want to bring children into this world. I'm glad your parents didn't say that. But I assure you they felt the same way. <laughs> the more severely degraded the culture is. The more desperately we need little covenant children who are being reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you may say, well, I'm not sure they're going to survive. Who promised them to survive? Is that your number one goal, to have children who survive? No, you said not, not survive. <laughs> I want them to get a good education and go to the best university and the best graduate school so they can get the best job and make the most money and bury, marry a rich somebody, and have a successful life and play golf some. That's what I want. 
Yeah, that is true. That's what most people want. It's not what Christians want. Christians, when they have children, besides loving them dearly, I have five of them and four children-in-law and ten grandchildren. I love the daylights out of them. But the number one goal is to deploy them into a needy Babylon. And if I'm not training my children to do that, I'm wasting my time as a parent. I'm just wanting to luxuriate in whatever privileges we can enjoy together. Jeremiah says, you're in Babylon. Let's have kids and bring them in. We need them, especially in Babylon. So the first thing is settle down. Now, if you look at verse 7, this may be the key verse. Where the second major task he has for us in the city to which he's taken us is to seek the welfare of the city. The word welfare, you see three times in verse 7. And in each case, that's the word shalom. This probably most often translated peace. As a matter of fact, I think if you have an NIV, maybe it is translated peace. But the idea of peace in the word shalom and in the Hebrew context, as you know, is much more holistic than our English word peace, which usually simply means cessation of hostility. In the Hebrew language, peace doesn't just mean cessation of hostility. It certainly means that. But it means far more. It means to enjoy completeness and wholeness and fullness in life, to have the blessing of God in every component of your life. Now, what's our job? Look carefully at verse 7. He says, seek the wholeness, the completeness, the fullness, the favor of God in every realm of, uh, of uh, human experience in the city to which I've taken you. That's an enormous calling in a city like Memphis or like Jacksonville. We have similar populations. You have a lot more real estate than we do, but we have similar populations. Maybe our demographics are a little different from yours. In Memphis proper, we're at about uh, 58 to 60 percent African American, and with a, a largely growing Hispanic population. Uh, you in D Duval County and, and the city are more like um, 30 percent African American, 55 percent Caucasian, and uh, five or uh, somewhere between five and 10 percent Hispanic. Although they're always undercounted, as you know. You have a diverse city here, and you'll notice. That Jeremiah doesn't say, I want you to seek the prosperity, the welfare, the peace of the suburbs of your city. Now, the suburbs are included in the city. But he didn't say, in the Jewish quarter, I want you to be sure the Jewish quarter is prosperous. No, he said, I want you to seek the welfare of the entire city. About 20 years ago, we looked at this text at Second Presbyterian Church, and you know Larry Jensen well, and Larry said that changed his life when he realized that this is the city he grew up in, Memphis, Tennessee, is his city, and his job is to promote the welfare of the entire city. As you know, Chuck, he ends up being chairman of the Chamber of Commerce and getting involved with city government and so many boys' uh, clubs and girl clubs and, and, of course, the Neighborhood Christian Center, which is a huge uh, Christian enterprise, and many, many other things. He just hadn't thought about it before, that the whole city was his mission field. Now look, we as Christians are responsible for every square inch of this planet. 
The reason is God owns every square inch of this planet and He is worthy of worship and honor and tribute from every square inch of this planet. I cannot be in Dubai. I can't be in Jacksonville, but once every 50 years. <laughs> but I live in Memphis. I send people to Dubai. I send people to Jacksonville. But I live in Memphis. I want to cover every square inch of the planet to the best of my ability. And in our church, we have about 10 strategic centers around the world. We know that we can't be in every country, but we're doing what we can, partnering with other churches like yours who are taking other parts of the world, and we're covering every square inch of the world. It's on our heart. And we send people where we can't go, and that's what some of these missionary reports are all about. They're in places where you can't go because you're not there. You're sending them there because you're responsible for that territory and you can't be there. So you better get a representative. And you better pay for them and pray for them. But you're here. And what so many Christians miss is that we do not have a partial missionary force. The entire church is the missionary force. So, Josh and Anna are your missionaries in Uganda. Who are your missionaries in Jacksonville? They're sitting in your chair. It's you. And what they do in Uganda is exactly what you're to be doing here. Have you ever thought about that? When Josh and Anna go off and they have a budget and they ask for support, your missions committee, if they're doing their job well, they go through the line items and they will ask questions and challenge this line item and this line item to be sure that they've got a high quality budget that this congregation will support. And then they commit their support for it. What about your budget? Has anyone looked at your financials? Have you been accountable to anybody about your missionary work here? Do you realize you are a missionary? Every single one of us. The Lord said so. I sent you to Babylon. I want you to live there peacefully. I want you to engage the economy. But I want you to seek the welfare of the whole city. Now, in Memphis, we have 127 neighborhoods. And those are defined in interesting ways I won't get into. But in our city, with 127 neighborhoods, 27 out of 127 are what we call neighborhoods of choice. That means they're not in distress in any of the major components that demographers and sociologists use to assess neighborhoods. What, percent of our, uh, what percentage of our population lives in those 27 neighborhoods? 11%. That means that 89% of the Memphis population is living in either a vulnerable neighborhood or a clearly distressed neighborhood. And you know what kind of churches are in that 11%, don't you? There are a lot of Presbyterians, frankly. Because we, we love education. We love success. We love career tracks. We love nice neighborhoods. You'll find lots of Presbyterians in the 27 neighborhoods. You don't find too many in the 100 neighborhoods. And it's pretty much the same everywhere you'll go. But what God is saying to the Babylonians, I want you to pray for the welfare of the whole city. I want you to engage it. I want you to take it to heart. 
So, we at Second Presbyterian, I know you too, I can tell from some of the reports we've already heard, you're concerned about the whole city, including North Jacksonville. Duval County has a poverty rate somewhere around 12%. That's, a pretty, that's actually a pretty good number. But if you go into North Jacksonville, it's about four times that. You're getting close to 50% of the people who live below the poverty line. Do you know what that's like? Do you know the hopelessness that just descends like a cloud on a neighborhood where they can't get their trash picked up and they can't get law enforcement and they can't evict drug dealers three houses down? Where the people who run the businesses don't live there and where all the businesses are owned by people outside the neighborhood, where there's no real investment of the people there, there's no capital to speak of anything, where the schools are not only bad, but they're usually ignored by the larger population who either has outstanding public schools in their suburban neighborhoods or they erect academies and Christian schools so that their kids, their kids can get a good education. And what's been happening to us over the past 50 or 60 years during my lifetime is that a lot of wealthy Presbyterians have been figuring out how they're going to survive and how they're going to abound, and they have forgotten Babylon altogether. Babylon is a necessary evil. If you have to drive downtown and go to an office, fine, but get out of there as fast as you can. Get back to your high walls and your fancy house. Now, look, you know I live in a fancy house. I'm a Presbyterian minister. So I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on you. I'm talking about us, okay? Now, if some non-Presbyterian came in here and said that, you, you probably should get mad. But you shouldn't get too mad at me. I'm one of you guys. And we're looking at our own problem and how we see local mission. Now, when this begins to dawn on us, then we look into every ethnic group, especially those that have been oppressed for centuries, and the effects that that has on multiple generations. And we dive in with the intent to bring shalom to every area, especially those that are under-resourced. We have a particular heart for the poor. Where do you think Jesus spent most of his time, and why do you think he did that? It's called the grace of God. The grace of the gospel leads us to the people who are in the most need, in the city where we live. So we become the experts that the rest of the city looks to to figure out how to do it. About 12 years ago, I realized that almost all of our parents had their teenagers in private schools of one sort or another. That's not true today, but it was about 15 years ago. And I realized that we were not giving thought to the major educational problem among 125,000 kids who are in the Memphis school system. So I go down to talk to our superintendent, Dr. Carol Johnson. And I said, Dr. Johnson, our folks would love to do something to help in the public educational system, but, and I began to apologize. You know, most of our parents are involved in private systems, and I wouldn't want us to get involved and be an embarrassment to you because people would say, well, those people that are helping don't even send their kids here. And she interrupted me. She said, Reverend Wilson. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, do your people love children? And I had to fight back the tears, and I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you'll do fine. She said, if you'll just see my deputy, we have a new program we'd like to launch where we, 
We'd ask churches with resources like yours just to adopt a public school. Just do the best you can to help them. And she said, in your neighborhood, there are probably three options that you could look at, so we did. And lo and behold, Burclair School is just about four miles north of us. Just four miles. 40% African-American, 40% Hispanic, 20% other, over 90% on government-supported lunch program, so it's a very poor school. And they were about ready to be closed. So we go to the principal and we say, what can we do? And he said, well, we've got glass all over our, ch- our schoolyard. Could you just pick up the glass? Absolutely. So we go pick up the glass. What's next? He said, well, we don't have any grass in the front yard. It's just mud and dirt. We said, well, we'll sow grass, which we did. And we put up the little ropes, you know, keep people from walking on them. Lo and behold, next spring, you got some grass coming up. What can we do next? Well, you know, you could paint some rooms. So we painted rooms and the teachers came in the next fall with tears looking at these clean, cleanly painted rooms with an actual water dispenser in the faculty lounge. They couldn't believe it. And then we said, well, what can we do? And he said, well, maybe you could help the teachers. And we said, okay. So we asked every teacher there, would you like a Sunday school to sponsor you and to pray for you? And would you like volunteers to help teach kids to read, some of them who don't even know English? We'd love that. So we began teaching the kids just to read in little reading groups, especially some of our senior women who would go over. There were 300 people involved in this project. After about three years, people in Memphis noticed that Berkeley School's scores were going up. And when you're dealing with the under-resourced and the under-educated and test scores start going up, you get attention. I know this because I was with the governor just a couple of years ago, and he said, what about this? He knows everything going on in Memphis when it has to do with success with under-resourced people. And so the scores started to go up, and the principal told me, he said, other principals were calling and saying, what in the world are you all doing over there? And the principal said to me, he said, Sandy, all I knew to say to them was, I'm not real sure, but I think it has something to do with Jesus. It has something to do with Jesus. Some people had gotten the message that, of course, you want your children to have the best education they can have. But don't you want all the other kids to have the best education they can have? Jeremiah says, in the name of the Lord of hosts, pray, work for the peace, the shalom, the prosperity of the city to which I've taken you, and in their shalom, you'll find your shalom. Now lastly, verses 8 through 14. Yikes. We're going real fast. Verses 8 through 14, the Lord says, I'm going to get you home. So you're in Babylon. You want to be in Jerusalem? You want to get home? He said, I'm going to take you home. And the first thing he says, if you'll, if you'll look at verses uh, 8 and 9, he says, don't listen to people who are giving you false promises. There's some of these health and wealth people who tell you, you know, if you just believe in yourself or believe in God, either one, you can have mountains of goodies right now in this life. And God says, don't listen to them. They're preaching lies. Because the lies that were being preached in Jeremiah's day were, the health and wealth people were saying, you can go back now. You don't have to wait. God's going-